imagine if you please Quiet nights offer classic films But mornings offer eggs and cheese Are you ready for some omelets? Georgia Football, Classic Cinema and Omelets Podcast with your host, Steve Shafini. Steve. Oh, elderly Jewish me. Why do you look so sad? This is Georgia Football, Classic Cinema and Omelets, the internet's number one podcast for Georgia football talk, classic cinema analysis, and omelet recipes. We got a busy show for you today. Georgia loses once again to Florida. That's 21 of 27 in Jacksonville. Score was 24-10, but the game wasn't even that close. So we got new coaching staff. New coordinators, same result. So you can't blame the coaching staff, right? But you can if the offense averages 1.1 yards per rush, which is what happened. So in a series where we lost 21 of 27, Georgia manages to humiliate themselves in a new and increasingly cruel way. Same thing, year in, year out. It's almost like we're a character in a certain film franchise that never learns this lesson. Yep, that one. Of course, I mean, boo, Medea's Halloween. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's an error in the teleprompter. That's Halloween. Halloween. Fire the teleprompter guy. But not just Halloween. For you, my listeners, since there's so very few of you, I watched the first six Halloween movies in a row. Why well, I stopped at six. It just got too ridiculous. I'm not a masochist, but I did watch the Georgia-Florida game. Heebie-jeebies. <laughs> and since we fade this out, and since we no longer give a fuck about anything in the universe, we're going to make a meat lover's omelet. That's right. There are going to be three sausages up in here. That's what she said. Whoa, hey. Uh, all right, so without further ado, let's get these eggs rolling out, and we're going to talk about this fiasco, this latest fiasco of Georgia football. Uh, first of all, with this omelet, if you're making this, the recipe is on food com. the worst name for a website I've ever heard. But that's where the recipe is, and you know, I always say three eggs per omelet. That gives it a nice consistency, but there's going to be so much stuff in this one, you're going to have five. So I'll cook it at a lower flame and start to, you know, I already have my ingredients. I'm using chicken sausage because I figure it's not as suicidal. So if you want to substitute and use real sausage, that's cool. And I have a little bit of leftover bacon crisp I'm going to use. So start that over a medium flame and talk about this latest fiasco. And like I said, I, I knew I was going to do the Halloween franchise and the Georgia-Florida game since it's played on Halloween weekend, since the storyline is unbelievably repetitive, and since one person's always getting hacked up to bits at the end of this. But I figured I didn't know where really the parallel was. Like, it's easy to say Spurrier is Michael Myers, and crazy Georgia fans who think we can win the East are like Dr. Loomis. Pure evil! That's a pretty good Donald Pleasant's impression, don't you think? And I think it's an even insult to Lori Strode to say that Georgia football is like Lori because she at least has the common sense to live from movie to movie, whereas we get hacked up to bits year in, year out. And I think that Georgia football is more like the franchise itself. Signs of brilliance, just enough to delude you that there's something more there. 
And then retreating back into mediocrity, then the same mediocrity year in, year out, over and over again. And just when you think you're out of ideas and you can't possibly milk another 90 minutes out of a tit that had been drying up since 1981, boom, reboot the franchise. Eight games in the Kirby Smart era, and you can say the reboot might not be as good as the original, as is often the case. Now again, it's, this isn't just a 24-10 loss against our most hated rival, 21 out of 27. It's how we played. These statistics, I thought they were typos. I had to double and triple check them. They're legit. It's not just a 24-10 loss to a ranked team. Listen to this. 1.1 yards a rush. 1.1 yards per rush. Nick Chubb, who ran for 100 yards in every game that he played four quarters in until this season, 1.1 yards a carry for the Georgia offense, and just 20 yards for Chubb. And before you start with the offensive line is bad. Yeah, I know they're bad. I know they're bad. 1.1 yards a rush. If you fall, they're not invalids. If you fall forward, you'll get 1.1 yards a rush. 20 yards rushing for Chubb. 47 yards of total offense in the second half. Jacob Eason with the longest rush of the day at 8 yards. God, these statistics are so alarming. Only one thing can make them even more frightening. Sony Michelle. 4 yards on 3 rushes. Georgia averaged 32 yards per punt. <laughs> At 4-4, four and four, Georgia may not be bowl eligible. Alright, you get the point. It was so bad that there's not even a consensus on when the last time Georgia rushed for so few yards in Jacksonville. Uh, the AJC only had statistics back to 2001. CBS Sports was researching this to say it's at least 1960. 1960. That's how behind Georgia's offense is. What the hell are they doing on offense? It looked like Tecmo Bowl when you don't even know how to play yet and like your roommate un- unplugs the controller. That's what it looked like. Uh, better said, Bill King, in his excellent junkyard blog on dognation.com, quote, Jim Cheney's play calling was unimaginative, predictable, and obtusely stubborn, end quote. I would even say it's acutely stubborn. How do obtusely stubborn and acutely stubborn? Two opposing adverbs mean the same thing in this context? I don't know, but that's the kind of week it was. All right, now, you know, our alumni are still very divided, and it was like the pro-Rick people are now like the I told you so people, and the the anti-Rick people are now the Kirby excuse makers, and they were really inconsistent with their excuse making, and I, I know eight games isn't enough I know, I know, but I've seen nothing. I haven't seen improvement from week to week. The same offensive line trouble, the same lack of scheming. I, why, where were the runs to the outside, the rollouts, the screen game? Nothing. No changes. They're still running chub between the tackles that we don't have. And this was after a bye week. That two weeks to come up with this game plan? What game plan? Now, I know that the offensive line is bad. I know the wide receivers are undersized, but if you still think there's a 180-degree turn at this at some point, think about this. Have you ever seen a team get this much worse over the course of a season? I'm worried about 2017 and 2018. You know, they say you can't judge a coach after eight games or you need to give him a chance. I, I agree with that. But, I mean, you're not judging. You are judging, though, not necessarily on wins and losses, and you're looking for little things, little signs of improvement, to which I've seen none. Zero. 
and we're still divided. You still have the Rick guys, and you still have the Kirby guys. Eight games into his tenure, we're still talking about Coach Rick, who, by the way, lost again. And Miami lost to a North Carolina team that's so bad, they lost to Georgia. So let that sink in. Point being, there's so many excuses being made for Kirby and being made for this program right now that I'm going to make it easy for you. We're going to spin the wheel of excuses. Spin! Oh, come on. Big bucks, no whammies. Uh, We got the 2013 recruiting class. Can't win with a freshman quarterback. Kirby needs to win with his own guys. Invested heavily in River City Showdown shirts. And it's going to be... Kirby needs to win with his own guys. I love this excuse because, like all of them, it is technically true. You do need a uh, chance to win with your own players. I know you want to beef up that offensive line. You want to be big, tough, and strong like Alabama. But at what cost? How many humiliating losses are we going to have to sit through? Do I even need to point out that Jim McElwain won 10 games his first year at Florida? That's a three-game improvement from the year before. Or that Gus Malzahn won 12 games, a nine-game improvement in his first year at Auburn. Kirby Smart didn't need to do that. He took over a team that already won nine games. And so far, even if we went out, which we won't, we're at a minus two trajectory. So, But again, I'm not all that concerned with wins and losses. I'm just tired of the argument that help is on the way. When Kirby gets his own guys in here, we're going to be as good as Alabama. Blah, blah, fucking blah. Yeah, I know he's an ace recruiter. I know he's really got the inside track on some 2028 recruiters that are kicking ass in the fourth grade right now. Hope is on the way. You know, and I don't care what 24-7 Sports says or Rivals.com. And maybe the future is bright. But the present is putrid. It is awful out there. And it seems that we're headed in the wrong direction. Like I said, we played worse in every game this year. How is that possible? Are we just going to tank until 2018? How many more of these humiliating losses do we have to stomach? How many more homecoming losses to Vanderbilt are in the cards? How many games where we run the ball backwards against Florida? Why do the powers that be always pick Halloween of all days to transfer Michael Myers? Hey, it's the 30th anniversary of him hacking up his sister. Why don't we move him from Smith's Grove over to Haddonfield for no fucking reason? But yet they always do it, and you know that thing is going to crash. Just like Georgia-Florida game. All right, um, I had to pause to flip the omelet. It's really dense. It's more like a quiche at this point, and it's a little burnt. Uh, It was about nine minutes in real time. I recommend that you cook yours in about seven minutes in real time. And I didn't even put all the sausages in. So um, I just put like a little bit, like two chicken sausages and a little bit of bacon. So it's not as suicidal. Not even for that, just for the consistency of it. But definitely I recommend the low flame. And again, again, say seven minutes on each side, you should have omelet bliss. All right. So after watching Halloween's one through six, I've come to the conclusion, very scientific, very analytical conclusion, that it's just not a very good franchise. Meaning there's one undisputed classic out of a staggering 10 movies, counting the two reboots. And that's a pretty low percentage. You got your Star Wars percentage, which is like half. And, but after watching some other horror movies... Like, Friday the 13th just seems so adolescent and stupid, having none of the uh, mythology of Michael Myers. But the franchise eventually chokes on its own overblown mythology. But 1 out of 10 is good. Hey, it's like Tim Tebow's batting average for the Arizona Fall League. Hey, I don't have a fucking rimshot sound effect. 
that's where it would go. Well, anyway, uh, I want to talk more about the third and the sixth one, which everybody hates, but making it official starting at the beginning from 1978, independent movie Halloween, directed by John Carpenter, written by Deborah Hill and John Carpenter, produced by Deborah Hill and John Carpenter. So it's a real independent movie, which are always the best kind of horror movies, whether it's Blair Witch Project or Night of the Living Dead, because the budget, they can't show things. Almost by accident, building up suspense. And, uh, you know, upon repeat viewing, I don't want to spend too much time because it's been talked to death. The little things that you don't, that are so cliche and so ripped off that you don't even understand that they were once uh, cutting edge and innovative. It's hard to put it in the context of 1978. You know, just like the point of view shot, the opening murder that shot through the holes of the mask. It's been done, it's been ripped off so many times. And uh, really, I was surprised how little happens. I mean, all you, you really don't have anything happen, just this music. I mean, you got just Laurie Strode and her two friends walking home from school, yet it's so ominous. And in hindsight, all right, it's enough of that. <laughs> just think, it's just like the 1990 Georgia-Florida game. Florida drubs Georgia 38-7. Little do we know that this pattern would repeat itself 21 of the next 27 years. There was going to be a lot of sequels. And like I said, uh, you know, the occasional palm tree shot annoys me. We can see the palm trees in the background, but hey, they had a small budget. So for the most part, Halloween holds up really well, other than it's um, the context of it, it's been ripped off so many times. You can make the case that's maybe the most ripped off movie in the history of cinema, starting with the first film to rip it off, Halloween 2. Now I think time has been kind of Halloween 2, only because Halloween 3... Season of the Witch, a.k.a. the one without Michael Myers, is so hated. But I think Halloween 2 is an absolute piece of shit because it has not one original idea and undermines some of the storylines in the original. Like, you know, Michael Myers is like this supernatural boogeyman. And I like the idea of him being like the guy next door because it really puts you at ill at ease. You know, it's like Norman Bates. You know, the boogeyman can be the guy you said hi to in the morning. And, you know, the fact that he can't be killed, and then Laurie Strode is actually his sister, which spawned eight more fucking movies out of that ridiculous storyline. And, you know, that also undermines the idea that he just murders at random because he's evil. You know, now he's murdering someone highly specific to cut off the Myers bloodline. We're going to get into that in a little bit. Um, But it gets really convoluted, and it has none of the suspense of the original. In fact, this is where it gets weird. John Carpenter produced, Rick Rosenthal directed... And then so many splatter movies were popular after that that they didn't think the film was gory enough. So John Carpenter himself directed more scenes, put more gore into Halloween 2. And then it's this really cut-and-paste movie, including some real gross-out shit like a woman taking a hypodermic needle to the eye and this other like really chesty nurse. She really wanted to get fucked, so you know she's going to get murdered the worst way possible. Uh, she gets like boiled alive. And the one I saw was like the um, this real mishmash, the the TV cut. There's like ten different cuts. So I mean, already four minutes into the sequel, in my mind, the rails, the wheels come off the rails of the Halloween franchise. The wheels come off the rails. Did I say that right? You know what I meant. But there's way more Halloween to come. What is that? Oh my god, I can't take it. Oh my god, so annoying. Bus. Kill everyone for no fucking reason. Alright, for those of you who know, that's the music from Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. The one that everybody hates. The one without Michael Myers. Um, it is 
a truly bizarre film. Here's the thing. John Carpenter and Deborah Hill want to do a different Halloween-themed film every year. Which, when you think about it, it would have been awesome. They could get free of all the Michael Myers continuity. Uh, but this is a truly bizarre film involving an evil cult, some systematic brainwashing. These Halloween masks that they actually put on a kid and his like, head explodes. It's gnarly as fuck. And, you know, a couple of green blood oozing robots because you can't have too many of those. And the plot's like a little bit of Outer Limits or The Wicker Man or Children of the Corn. It makes no sense whatsoever. Like, why does the Shamrock Novelty Company, like, why do they want to kill everybody? Cult sacrifice. To me, that's like just the, a cop-out when you can't explain, when you have a plot that's going nowhere in the third act. It's a cult sacrifice. So everything's different, but the result is the same. Like the 96 Georgia-Florida game, I'm sorry, 95 Georgia-Florida game that was in Athens because of renovations to Altel Stadium, which is what they called it back then. Half a hundred. Someone on the sidelines tells Steve Spurrier that no one scored 50 points plus between the hedges, and he proceeds to run up the score on hapless Georgia. Ugh, that was awful. I was at that game. Half a hundred is what he said because he's awesome at math like that. <sighs> so Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, it's a terrible movie, but at least it's a different kind of terrible movie. It's a bizarrely terrible movie. It's interestingly terrible, whereas 4 and 5 are so interchangeable, I watched them out of sequence, and I didn't even notice. Uh, but if you're saying that Halloween 3 makes no sense, okay, why does the Shamrock Novelty Corporation want to kill everyone? I don't know. Why does Michael Myers so hell-bent on severing the bloodline? Why does he have to kill his niece? Why does he go from wanting to kill his sister, Lori, to his niece? And what happens to Lori? No one knows. Who's the father of the kid? No one knows. Why does Jim Chaney call a pitch to Isaiah McKenzie on fourth and inches against Vanderbilt ending the game? No one knows. Why did that same Isaiah McKenzie get no touches against Florida? Cold sacrifice? No one knows. All right, so four and five. The only thing you got to know is Michael Myers, two movies of him trying to kill his niece. And this is where it gets really weird. Um, his niece is holding the bloody machete at the end. So I guess that it just, she's the new Michael Myers and going to take over. But they mention nothing of this in, the, in Halloween 5. Again, they go back to Michael Myers. So, Georgia football, unlike the Halloween franchise, you can't pass the bloody machete to the next guy and then ignore it. We're stuck with this bloody machete for quite a while. Halloween 6, Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers, is so convoluted and so fucked up and one of the biggest train wrecks ever caught on cinema. It doesn't even have the same title. It was Halloween 6. It was the, it's now the curse of Michael Myers, there's a bootleg producer's cut that has since been released. I think it was called uh, The Murder City Showdown in certain cities. Just a disaster. A lot of people working on the script in different directions. Reshoots. Everything can go wrong on production. Can go wrong. Starting with this completely convoluted story. Um, turns out that Michael Myers had been killing this whole time because he inherited the curse of Thorn. Uh, and they have to hide his niece's child, Jamie's child. So... <laughs> They don't turn her into the next Michael Myers, let this cult control her. Meanwhile, the adult Tommy Doyle and Dr. Loomis infiltrate this cult. And so why is Michael Myers killing what turns out to be a super specific series of people this whole time? You guessed it. Cult sacrifice. You know, it says it on the tattoo on his wrist that you didn't see in the six other movies, the five other movies. And in an astonishing coincidence, Laurie Sherwood's family is living in the Myers house. I mean, they have like one line to explain this. That was a really good deal on real estate. And everyone in the city of Haddonfield knows that this is the murder house, except the people living in it. And there's like a Howard Stern-esque 
shock jock doing his show from Haddonfield on the anniversary of the murders. They don't have a radio in this house. Uh, the adult Tommy Doyle is played by Paul Rudd. Uh, it's his first film, and he looks like he's the only one happy to be in this movie. Poor Donald Pleasance. They didn't even have enough money in the budget for the scar that he had in the last two movies. But, and his identical dialogue. That was the least of his problems. It turns out the writer, Daniel Ferens, he had the Curse of the Thorn pitch, and he was setting it up in the fourth and fifth ones, and had a somewhat more cohesive film, and it was shot according to his script. And then they tested it for what is, quote, a bunch of 14-year-old boys, and it tested really poorly. In particular, they thought the old man talking <laughs> was boring, and they couldn't understand the Curse of the Thorn storyline. Can't say I blame him there. So here come the reshoots. The only problem is Donald Pleasance dies before the reshoots. The director, undeterred, reportedly didn't know who Donald Pleasance was and was determined to cut out his part completely. So I guess he'd never seen The Great Escape. Totally disrespectful. So he cuts the movie together real haphazardly like a blind monkey and the result is a predictable, awful mess of a film. And there's things that just don't add up at all and not just the scars that you don't see from movie to movie in this movie. It's like, um, Michael Myers, I guess, killed the DJ at the party, but he was at the Schrode house at the same time, so he had to be in two places at once. Um, and there's a scene at the end where Michael Myers is in the room with the cult members, and he kills them all. doesn't even show. It doesn't explain why. He just kills them all. It's a, um, it's a conflicting cult sacrifice. And then there's the other I kid. I guess, because it's never explained. And then there's the other kid who keeps hearing the voices in his head, and they never establish what or why. And there's a producer's cut that used to be on bootleg, but since been released in the Halloween box. And the biggest difference is the ending, in which Donald Pleasance, Dr. Loomis, absorbs the curse of the thorn, so the little kid doesn't get it. Which is, you know, a better ending than the one they had. Paul Rudd just indiscriminately beats the shit out of Michael Myers with a pipe. After all that, after 30 years, gunshots, hanging, stabbings, thrown off a cliff... Yeah, I know. A pipe. Uh, and then they come back with Jamie Lee Curtis, come back with the original. They disallow Halloween's four and five, or disavow. I think that kind of synonymous here. Uh, and presumably Season of the Witch. Don't you wish we could do that to the last three Georgia games? The last three Georgia-Florida games? I think there's one game that Florida counts that we don't. Or one game where Georgia counts and Florida doesn't. I think Georgia says we're 50-44-1, and, and Florida says they're 49-44-1. and one. Uh, regardless, we don't have the power to simply ignore shit. I wish we did. Um, but I say bringing Jamie Lee Curtis back is like the equivalent to firing an assistant. And you gotta think Jim Cheney's now squarely in the crosshairs for 2017. And you know, that's not a fix-it. Usually when an offensive coordinator or defensive coordinator is fired, the head coach gets fired soon after. And, you know, then they come back with these two Rob Zombie movies that this day I've never seen. I have no interest in seeing a gorier, shittier, less suspenseful Halloween and Halloween 2 movies. And as far as rebooting of the Georgia program, we just did it. And we can be like Tennessee, and they had three coaches in four years. And it's getting to a point where it's not even about our wins and losses and the season's already tanked. I just feel for the Nick Chubbs and Sonny Michels and maybe even Jacob Eason who aren't getting the most out of their college careers. Draft stock's probably going down. And, you know, you look at Todd Gurley, who could have got down as the second greatest Georgia Bulldog of all time. He had the suspension, he wasn't being used right, and he had a knee injury. Chubb was going to take that over. Chubb was going to be the guy to challenge Herschel Walker's record book. He has just over 600 yards this season, 
222 coming in the first game. You're going to tell me that's because we lost two offensive linemen? Sorry, I'm not buying that. Georgia's averaging 23.25 points per game, closing in on the school record for worst ever, 25.2 during 2006. I do want to note, since the offense was historically bad against Florida, we never really talk about the defense, but most people thought the defense played pretty well against Florida. It did, given that the average field position was terrible as Georgia averaged 32 points, 32, excuse me, 32 yards per punt, and they were playing on a short field all day. But actually, if you look at between the numbers, Georgia defense is last, dead last in the SEC in red zone. They're giving up scores on 95% of plays. So that's something they got to work on too. Again, I see nothing that makes me think that this program is going to do a 180 next week or at any point. Yeah, I know. Recruiting's great. Blah, 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 blah. Next season, next season, we're going to get these big old beefy linemen. We're going to be Alabama of the East. Speaking of beefy, Kirby Smart not be around in 2018. Neither am I with this omelet. This is really good. Um, I recommend cutting it into pieces. <laughs> this can serve about three to five people. We've got some chicken sausage, a little Mrs. Dash. I think uh, I think it's missing peppers, so if you want to put a little bit of peppers with your bacon... Uh, meat lovers omelet. I recommend that highly. It's all the time we got. We'll get ready as bad as it was. We'll get ready to do it all again next week. Thanks everyone for listening. Go dogs. Trick or treat. It's hard to play good SEC football without great offensive and defensive lines. I think there's a lot of skill players. 